50-60% of the economy of the world is derived from nature. Right. Mm. Yeah. And if we ignore that, we ignore that at our own peril. Yeah. I mean, we're creating jobs for disaster management <laughs> <Definitely>. centers. <laughs> I mean, if we did our job, sorry, we have no disaster oh, center <laughs> needed. Yeah. Um, and, and we'd love to call these natural disasters, but they're not. a show that highlights the lives of Malaysians who have impacted the country through their work in different fields. In this mini-series, we'll be highlighting these three topics in particular, research and advancement in health, education and climate crisis. Yep, and today we've got two special guests, Dr. Kamarul Azari Razak and Faisal Parish to talk about what climate crisis means for Mother Earth and us humans. Uh, but before we get into it, a quick shout out to the Merdeka Award Trust who are sponsoring this episode. That's right, the Merdeka Award Trust is a trust that has two main programs under its wings, the Merdeka Award as well as the Merdeka Award Grant for International Attachment. Yep, so we've read a lot about you, but can you tell us who you are and what you do? Faisal. Uh, I'm environmental uh, ecologist, environmental uh, manager uh, by uh, practice, and uh, I've been working uh, nearly 40 years here in Malaysia uh, to address environment, natural resource uh, management issues. Okay, Dr. Cameron? Well, um, I'm geoscientist. I've been working with um, University of Gymnasia for about 20 years, mm. and I'm looking forward to contribute uh, to disaster risk reduction agenda. All right. All right. Okay, we'll start with you, Faisal. Um, the list of accomplishments on the GC website is immense. Uh, <laughs> could you tell us about why you started the GAC and have you always had an interest in the environment? Uh, firstly, I've always had an interest of in, on environment since, mm -hmm. since small. I was born in the UK, but uh, migrated to Malaysia uh, 40 years ago. Uh, Global Environment Center was established about 25 years ago, so it's a Malaysian non-profit organization. But we're working in Malaysia and also throughout the ASEAN region uh, to address uh, key issues related to environment. We have key focus, and that is trying to build a partnership between the different stakeholders. Very often, uh, they're working in conflict or against each other or fighting or criticizing, and we try to bring together to create a partnership for the environment between different stakeholders to solve key problems like climate change, biodiversity, water resources, and so on. So, Dr. Camerol, um, why did you find interest in disaster risk management? It, it sounds like something people would go, why? <laughs> well, there are so many reasons. Um, let me start by sharing about my family. I born in Kuala Terengganu, mm -hmm. uh, one of the coastal cities that prone to flooding. And my father, he was from Kuala Kansa uh, in Perak. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was um, the idea of having a flood mitigation and also flooding on the other side of the eastern part of Peninsula Malaysia. From the knowledge from the childhood, and when I grew up, and 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 I pursue a study in Holland mm. for five years. I have been living about five years in Europe. Then I come back to Malaysia in 2012 and working with Japanese. Then I started to think of why not Malaysia having our own national center for disaster risk management. Mm. I think that was the dream about seven years ago and I'm looking forward to contribute for another seven years to go to support the global agenda in 2030. Mm. Mm. So if you weren't in your fields that you currently are in, is there another thing that you'd like to pursue other than what you're in? I've got a one-track mind, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I've always been interested in this, even though my school career guidance Advisor said, oh, there's no work to be, you can't get a job in this or whatever. Really? Yeah, I tried to persuade me to be something different, like banker or something, like, but mm. I just ignored and uh, just pursued. And uh, uh, I don't think I would ever have another choice to dealing something with the environment. Singularly driven. 
It was meant to be. Perfect. Yeah. Um, <laughs> might be different than me, um, but I love teaching. I love yeah. learning something, getting a new knowledge from the field. Right. Uh, perhaps I'm, 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 I'm looking forward to be one of the humanitarian actors. Perhaps working in the field, meeting with the people, and helping the the victims, perhaps. Mm. So Faisal, we, we, we've heard you mention before that one of your favorite quotes is, we do not inherit the earth from our ancestors, but we borrow it from our children. Can you elaborate on how that belief kind of relates to the work that you do with uh, GEC? I mean, basically, uh, I mean, we believe, I mean, at Global Environment Center, that we, that humankind is meant to be, the, we're meant to be the stewards of this planet. Right. The good stewards. We're not meant to be the exploiters or users or destroyers, but unfortunately, over the last uh, hundred, few hundred years, we have turned to be the exploiters and destroyers of, of this planet. Mm. And uh, we really believe that we're put here on this earth for a purpose and that we need to take care of the earth and to think of it as belonging to our children or our grandchildren, mm. in which case we're not going to trash or destroy something for our grandchildren. We, I mean, that thinking needs, needs to change. Mm. But unfortunately, and this is maybe strongest in Western culture, is this, I mean, it's just a, something to be exploited. Mm. When you look at the indigenous cultures of the world, and that saying comes from the indigenous tribes of North America, but you hear something very similar in uh, Asia, Malaysia, uh, that, that the people are part of the earth, of, Mother Nature is our mother, mm. and that if we don't recognize that and we don't work in harmony, uh, I mean, 50-60% of the economy of the world is derived from nature. Right. Mm. Yeah. And if we ignore that, we ignore that at our own peril, yeah. then, I mean, we're creating jobs for disaster management. Definitely. <laughs> I mean, if we did our job, sorry, we have no disaster center <laughs> needed. Yeah. Um, and, and we love to call these natural disasters, but they're not. 90% of them are human-induced disasters, or we put ourselves arrogantly in nature's way. So I guess it comes from that saying, you don't plant a tree for you to sit underneath it. You plant a tree for your grandchildren to sit underneath it, right? Mm. Similar yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, uh, definitely. And, and in some places, we talk about planting trees as insurance policy. Right. I mean, that you need to think of those trees are something, I mean, you grow it up and then future generations or, or when there's, there's an issue, you've got, you've created a bank, you've created a store of wealth in, in that tree. And unfortunately, I mean, the past attitude or attitude of most people, you know, the jungle, we need to clear the jungle if we're, we're to develop. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, we rely on the jungle. Where does our water come from in Malaysia? 97% is coming from rivers. Yeah. Where the rivers start? Rivers are starting in the forest. If we destroy the forest, we destroy the rivers. Mm. We destroy the rivers, where are we going to drink? If we don't have water to drink, or we don't have to run our industries, where are we going to survive? Yeah. Mm. And climate change is making it 10 times worse. So, okay, so for us common folk, like, we would probably think the most damaging thing that we do is like things like buying into fast fashion, maybe plastic use, um, driving our cars. I'm just interested to know from you guys' perspective, what do you do that's the most unfriendly to the environment? I mean, one, one can say the population in, in general. Mm. I mean, uh, of course, the major contributors to climate, climate change are related to, to energy use, mm -hmm. transportation, uh, land use, I mean, leading to the clearance or development of forest or draining of uh, peatlands. Mm -hmm. um, those are all the major, major contributors. Um, but there's many other things which are done in our name, in the name of generating the things that we as consumers want, want to buy, mm -hmm. which lead to uh, pollution and, and degradation of, of, of the environment. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and, and sometimes we think that we don't cause any of this. Mm. But if we're not buying those, those things, there's no market, then those problematic things don't, don't happen. Yeah. Of course, the, some products you can pr produce in a good way, a sustainable way or responsible way, and you can produce the same product in a, in a destructive Harmful way. way. Mm. And we need to differentiate between those two and give the incentive for the responsible way. Mm. 
but uh, sometimes we have to do a total paradigm shift and look at a totally different way of thinking or the way forward. Mm. Dr. Cameron? Yeah. Well, um, I, I do agree, definitely. Um, I, I think aviation, uh, a transport, like contribute 10%. And energy, uh, I think energy sectors contribute about 35%. Mm. And in fact, you can measure at, at individual level. I, I think all of us have, have our own applications yeah. where we can measure our Carbon. annual carbons, mm. like myself, you know, for this year. Um, a 5.1 um, ton, you know, um, emissions. Mm. So you know where exactly um, a sectors that you can reduce annually. So things that get measured easily to be assessed. Mm. So my point here, um, there are many ways uh, for all of us to see which part that you individually yeah. contribute mm. to the global emission mm -hmm. and from there I think you can make your own well say changes changes yeah. yes have you calculated your carbon I have not but <laughs> I've I never have, even thought I've, about I've not it. thought about that <laughs> 5.1 tons for the last year yes I mean I, I do things that most people are doing now I guess is mm. reusing bags I don't use plastic bags I yeah. very rarely use a plastic bottle anymore just the mm. things I think that has become more highlighted and things that we can control very easily. I tend yeah. to buy less clothing now. Mm. I try to avoid fast fashion outlets where I can, unless there's a yeah. big sale on something. <laughs> but no, seriously, I mean, I, I really have tried to do that. What about you? I think I'm the same. I do try. I think um, my journey started, actually, I watched a documentary. Mm -hmm. um, I watched a lot of documentary, but Cowspiracy, I don't mm. know if you've seen it. it started with like uh, the use of dairy products of how mm. like cows emit methane yeah. that's really bad for the environment things like that so then i was vegetarian for like two years because of that fast fashion i don't know i wouldn't say that i try it's really bad i'm aware but i still do it <laughs> because it's cheap <laughs> so we've established that we're not perfect right no. but there are there are people out there obviously that have a very very different opinion to what we're talking mm -hmm. climate deniers you know what's the kind of most memorable interaction you've had with somebody who might identify as a climate denier fortunately i've not had face to face <laughs> fortunately <laughs> maybe fortunately for them uh, i don't know um but definitely there are out there yeah but i think they're really in a very small minority when you look at scientists 99.9 .9 of scientists agree and the scientific literature is very clear yeah. mm. climate change is happening there is a small minority just the same as there was a small minority that says smoking is good for your health yes oh. the same uh, group out there i mean supported by industry in many cases their voice is uh, magnified by, by industry mm. and that's been proven the, the fun flow uh, to many of getting the voice out um, a few years ago there was a study and that when you look at the media coverage 50% of the media was saying climate change is real and 50% of the stories in the media were saying climate change is, is fake now. Right. And, but the scientific work was 99% to one, less than 1%. Mm. And basically this was manipulation by media, uh, through the media, I don't say by the media, but by uh, vested interest in trying to uh, uh, dissuade public opinion mm. in the same way that, that the cigarette industry yeah. was spending billions on false information, fake, fake information. It's lobbying, weren't they? It's lobbying mm -hmm. uh, that's changing mind. And, and still there are those in political parties and political positions. Unfortunately, in certain countries, it seems to be the right thing to say that mm. climate change is fake news. It comes from China or <laughs> something like that. It's totally and utterly wrong. And, yeah. and we are totally wrong as a human being to say something which is in the process of destroying our planet mm. is fake news. Mm, yeah. And some people, unfortunately, in this planet believe it. Right. Because they believe these politicians who talk whatever yeah. and, and they take it in and believe it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Dr. Cameron, you know, you're on the ground, you're speaking to people a lot of the time. Do you face these people as well? And, and how, well, how do you explain things to you? <laughs> uh, well, I don't have my, my personal experience right. uh, facing this, but I am hoping, fortunately or unfortunately, 
meeting these groups of people who use fact and figure um, or evidence to change the perceptions. Mm. So we were so worried because um, many people are suffering from this impact of the climate change. Yeah. And last week I was in Rantau Panjang in Kelantan and meeting these people actually tell you, you know, that you have to do a lot of work, you know, particularly dealing with this climate denier in the mm. future. Mm. Mm. So if you woke up tomorrow mm. um, with a piece of news that scared you half to death, what's the scariest environmental news you'd hate to wake up to? Water pollutions. Water pollution? Yeah. yeah. Uh, from a climate perspective, I would say something like the Greenland ice cap has gone. <laughs> Just disappearing, oh. yeah. If the Greenland ice cap melts, all the coastal cities of the world yeah. are underwater. Yeah. yeah. And that includes a lot of Malaysia and a lot of Malaysian economy Definitely. is gone. Yeah. We're seeing sea level rise, mm -hmm. but it's relatively uh, step by step, small amounts. We're seeing some of our coastal towns like Klang, every time there's a big high tide, the town yeah, right. is underwater. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's happening. But it's happened when things happen slowly. Mm. People tend to dismiss it, mm. or you know, it's just bad weather, or it's just something. And and I think that's the same thing with with attributing specific event to climate change. Climate change is a long term process, which you will see the real impact over 10, 20, 50, 100, 200 years. But on from yesterday to today you can't see that change mm. or you can't directly attribute that massive rainfall today mm -hmm. is climate change. Mm. And I think that's been a lot of the misinformation there, mm. not necessarily on purpose, but people saying when, when the media asks the technical expert, let's say from drainage irrigation department, is this rainfall, mm. is this flood, is yeah. it because of climate change? Right. Can't say that. I mean, the, the expert cannot say that mm. because climate change increases the likelihood or frequency of these events. It's not that in previous thousand year we never had heavy rainfall. Yes, we have those events, mm. but climate change will make them more frequent. Yeah. What was a once in, in a hundred year flood becomes a once in a 10 year flood. Right. Mm. So it's a subtle difference. Yeah. But then it gets confused. Then the media starts writing, government officials says nothing to do with climate change. Mm -hmm. And then, oh, then what's all this thing about climate change? And I think that that is one of the things that distracts or, or put people off um, or, or think maybe that that fake news story about yeah. climate change being fake is, is reality because this, this scientist, this expert has said, you know, the all-time massive flood was not due to climate change. Yeah. Right. So, so with this like conflicting messages from the media, um, we're just like on social media all the time, doom scrolling, and mm. we get all these like, you know, like you said, a lot of conflicting messages. What would you say to like people who feel disempowered by all of these information? I mean, I think uh, uh, you shouldn't feel disempowered you should feel anxious yeah uh, I mean is I think we do helped? yeah yeah <laughs> I I mean I think that the anxiety is good I mean <laughs> that's our fight or flight mechanism right if we think everything's fine la, chill la, no problem la, then what's gonna happen la? we're going to just take it easy we're just right. gonna carry on business as usual we all need to be anxious we need to be hearing that ambulance coming. We need to, to hear the, the sirens wailing in, yeah. in our mind. Mm. Otherwise, we're not going to do, do, do something. Right, yeah. right. So it is a climate emergency. Mm. I mean, we just have to look at the, the figures, the statistics, the, the trends. Mm. If we look at the last 10 years, we have the nine of the 10 hottest years on record in the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's a trend. Yeah. Mm. That's a serious trend. And you extend that, you know, another 10, 20 years, mm. the world's burning. And some people get confused. I mean, climate change, only one or two degrees. And yeah. particularly this is used by politician or others in, in some countries. <laughs> oh, it's winter. Oh, let's have oh one, two degrees warmer. Oh, we'd love that. 
I mean, they use but that to do the narrative. But even winters are like super, like freezing. People are like dying because of how cold it is, yeah. right? So that's that's another misunderstanding where people are like, yeah. it's heating up, but it affects the other but, way. But um, that's the uh, issue about climate change. We use the word climate change, not the the term global warming. Global warming, global warming yeah. is is what people were using, and then people say, oh, it's global warming, but why is it cold? Cold, exactly. But actually, I mean, you take a blowtorch to one part of your body, yeah. Uh, the other part of the body also have some reactions, mm. and that's basically what's happening. Yeah. When we're we're heating up parts of the earth, we're disrupting the natural climate change. So when we had in Malaysia a number of years back a really cold, the coldest weather ever in Malaysia, what, 17 degrees, and people were freezing and dying or something. Uh, that was the tongue of cold air coming down from the Arctic. Mm. Normally that would be kept north, but because the Arctic is warming so dramatically, the airflow patterns are changing, and that tongue of cold air came down from uh, China, from Siberia, mm. and came to Southeast Asia. It, it's too simple to say, the world's warming or not warming or yeah. one degree or what's what's one degree warmer i just adjust uh thermostat <laughs> i mean one the degree aircon, the aircon or whatever so small changes can lead to big difference and then in southeast asia this change in the sea surface temperature is is driving either drought or absolutely massive rainfall mm. okay dr cameron I want, I want to come to you as well yeah um, please so earlier on, you, you talked about water pollution, mm -hmm. right? So I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here. And if you are the environment minister for one term, yeah. what's the first thing you would do? And is it something to do with water pollution? Uh, well, uh, we have many laws, we have many regulations, mm. but we need uh, strong enforcements. Mm. I've been living in Ampang Jaya for about 20 years and something scary when there's no water. Right. Mm. And it's completely unacceptable given the fact that we have many waters mm. and simply in the city there's no water yeah and it's happening more it's frequently happening. as well it happened to me just a couple of days ago yeah that's well talking about the policy we have enough policies but what we need is enforcements mm. and those enforcements must be helped by other sectors as well it's not only mainly responsibility of the governments but also the private sectors, private sectors yeah. non-governmental non agencies, mm -hmm. or even academicians. Mm -hmm. They have many solutions, they have many research outputs and product, but some of them never been translated into practice, you know? Mm -hmm. So they can, you know, use uh, low-cost technology to help the state governments, for example, to find the culprit, mm -hmm. that's very simple and find uh, long-term solutions. Mm. Mm. Okay, so we're just going to take a short break. We're going to hear a message from our sponsors. We want to give a huge thank you to the Medeca Award Trust for making this episode possible. Today, we want to highlight the Medeca Award Grant for International Attachment and its goal of fostering a culture of excellence in Malaysia. What they do is pretty unconventional, mm -hmm. if you're asking me, because they're providing a pathway for young Malaysians to pursue attachments with any international institution of their choice. Yeah, so from what I know is that the grant is actually designed for young Malaysians to engage in short-term collaborative projects or programs of up to three months at institutions like Oxford, Harvard or MIT, just to name drop a few. As long as it helps build your expertise and further enhance your research or work. So boarding, fees, flight, everything is covered from start to finish so that you can put in the hard work to achieve what you want to do during that short stint. That's right. The Merdeka Award Grant for International Attachment is open for applications starting the 1st of January till the 1st of May this year. So if you're interested, head down to the link in the description for more info. You can also follow Medeca Award for updates on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. All, all the social media. All of it. So one more thing before we get back into the episode, it's not just limited to research in health or technology, it also extends to the arts. So if you have something you really want to pursue, go for it. Now, back to the episode. Back, you're still hanging out with us. There's Dr. Kamaral, Faisal, myself, Sylvia, and Rich. Okay, we'll just quickly jump back in earlier, just now before the break. Dr. Kamaral, you touched on water pollution, mm -hmm. but along the same line, 
we have floods happening quite yes. badly, right? Mm. Um, in the beginning of last year, January 2020, December 2021, we'd had like really devastating floods. Now, one year after that, after having gone through all of those disasters, are we more equipped to deal with it? Let me uh, share some of the different perspective. Mm. Last year, we, we were badly hit by uh, major floods. We are talking about the impact of typhoons, right? That arrived two days before, 16 mm. of December at 5.55 in the morning. Um, while it was actually predicted, it is a monsoon by itself, but uh, we never expect that it came really in the morning and the impact um, actually affecting about uh, 63 district throughout the countries. And I was in the field, um, well, collecting all the data mm. and of course um, presented to uh, our minister at that particular time. Um, given the fact that the current modeling, climax modeling system, we are not able to predict the 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 impact of the typhoons within a short period of time. Mm. So when the land, uh, the the typhoons tails actually landed in the in the major part of the um, mountains um, that shared the boundary between Selangor, Pahang, and Rismilan, there's a lot of sediments uh, came in. It's not only water, right? then you see a lot of damage basically um, um, well collected mm. and the numbers of people who are affected is also increasing. I was part of the uh, uh, State Disaster Management Committee as an observer in the last five years. They have been prepared for that particular monsoons related flooding. Mm. But what we were facing last year was unusual event. It's very, very extreme weather event, and we have only two days to prepare. Okay. Uh, say, for example, in Shah Alam and Klang, we are talking about evacuating people, 36,000 people within three days. It's unbelievable. So, uh, given the huge impact to our cities, mm. and you know, um, uh, this year, I was also in Terengganu and, and Kelantan. Uh, we have observed a similar patterns of the impact of the monsoon. Well, technically speaking, um, last year we was reported about 6.1 billion economic losses from a single event. So this year, definitely, uh, there are so many improvements. Mm. Um, the governments uh, at the federal, at the states and district level, they are communicating, uh, they are um, changing the uh, information and resources. They are more better prepared. But of course, the scale of, of the event is um, completely different mm. last year and this year. Mm. But uh, hopefully, uh, based on our 12 years uh, data over the typhoons, uh, one of the strong indicators of the climate change and, and global warming, this is something that we were worried. Mm -hmm. um, the numbers of rainfall reported in, for example, last year in February, uh, in um, uh, Kenya Dam, well, it is in the uh, in Terengganu, it was reported close to 700 millimeter per day. Mm. It was beyond than our imaginations. So the water storage, the dam itself, couldn't really right. uh, cope yeah. uh, such amount of water that came within a short period of time. So these typhoons related disaster um, are perhaps one of the most um, uh, scary things in the DRR disaster risk reduction world in Malaysia. We have to be prepared yeah. given the fact that, that the peoples are actually accepting a certain risk. Mm -hmm. They can travel during monsoon, they can play with the water, flood water. But last year in December was different. 
it came with the sediment, with the tree trunks, with all the debris and so on. Mm. So the amount of damage are higher than expected. Mm. So that's pretty much the context between last year and this year. Mm. Right. Faisal, I mean, when I was growing up, you know, and I'm not a young man, um, the scary thing for us was the hole in the ozone layer. That was the kind mm. of first real indicator. CFCs, yeah. the hole in the ozone layer. Global warming was, was the, the catchphrase back then. Um, and now, of course, it, it, it's climate change. Is, is, do you think there was like a critical moment when people realized it, it's actually real, it's really happening, and we need to act, and we need to act now? And, mm. and if there was, what do you think that moment might have been? I think there's not been one particular moment. There have been a series of, of, of moments. Unfortunately, people only seem to be moved not by the science, not by the facts, but by disasters. Right. That happens in one country, and the other country says, well, well right. it didn't flood in Malaysia. It didn't happen to us. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Thailand. Mm. In southern Thailand, there was um, a massive rainfall, and then uh, from a logging camp, all of the logs uh, came down the hill on the flood and killed many villages. Some similarities of what we had in Malaysia uh, last year, uh, and in post Dipang in uh, Parak previously. Yeah. But the Thai government um, took the step, no more logging in Thailand and all of the forests become national park. Mm -hmm. And let's change our strategy from logging as a way of generating income to ecotourism. Yeah. And, and that has thrived. I mean, Thailand has became the number one uh, destination in the region, particularly because of all those national parks and tourist uh, yeah. destination. And, and to this day remains a major attraction. Yeah. Um, and that was just a change, a change in shift, recognizing that logging creates some income, but there are other alternatives. And I think that's what we need to look at mm -hmm. in, in Malaysia. I think, as, as Kamral said, um, after the last year flood, uh, the 2020 and 2021 uh, uh, flood, uh, then action was taken to improve the preparedness mm. and the response. Exactly. But preparedness and response are only two steps in the disaster Right. A management cycle. Right, right. You have to start with prevention. Mm. Only then preparedness, response, and recovery. And yeah. it's prevention and recovery that are often neglected. Yeah. And that's where we need to make the paradigm shift and put the effort into prevention. Mm. So that is why in Klang Valley, we're continually facing the problem. Mm. And then that's exacerbated by sea level rise at the bottom end. I'm, I'm sorry for the future, those living in Klang, you better move out. It's going to be impossible in the long term for you to survive, for us to survive, having that population in coastal area like Klang, mm. where you've got the flood coming from the inland, you've got the sea coming, yeah. high tide and the sea level rise coming. But we're not making that paradigm shift. We're carrying, oh, we will increase the number of boats for the rescue. Mm. We will do this. We will give some more ration. We'll prepare the evacuation center. No, that's not going to, to mm. cut it. We can't reduce emission, but we still clear our forests for yeah. durian plantation right. or for industries. And mm. we continue to build new housing development in the flood prone area. And then we wonder why they get flooded. Dr. Yeah. Cameron, I mean, you're on the ground while this is happening. You know? yeah. How is this making you feel? It was terrible, oh. um, given the fact that they have no idea mm. that the logging in the upstreams basically well, some of the flat So, well, hang on. Well, when you say they had no idea, you're talking about the general populace? Or are you... The, the people okay. who are living... Because the developers would know, right? Definitely. They, okay. Definitely. And, and those who are making their homes in the floodplain have no clue that they will be having like a hundred years return of floods within a short period of time. Mm. So this... This is a scary event, which I, I believe that we require a paradigm shift, not yeah. only from the government point of view, but also from the non-governments other sectors. But as of now, mm. do we have any preventative measures in place? Well, we spend a lot on the mitigation, flood mitigation. Mm -hmm. um, Five billion, if I'm not mistaken, on on the flood structural measure. Mm -hmm. But what we need is to balance between a structural measure and non-structural measure. Right. There are a scientific evidence that if you put more money into the nature-based solutions, it will return back mm -hmm. positively in the mm -hmm. long run. Mm -hmm. For example. Mm. Mm. Okay, so we know there's preventative measures coming out, yeah. and we, we've talked about that a little while. 
Um, but there is a narrative that um, it's not something single individuals can do to help climate change. Mm. You know, there's this big companies, you know, biggest polluters, uh, and people say that real change would depend on these companies cleaning up their acts. So mm. we, we hear about this quite a lot. But what, what are your thoughts on this narrative, Dr. Cameron? Well, let me give an example. Mm. Cameron Highland in, in Pahang. Have you been to I Cameron have, yeah. Highland? I mean, and the thing, the word we, the phrase is greenwashing, right? You know, yeah. people are saying this is what they're doing, they're, yeah. they're saying this thing, but in actuality, it's just phrasing. Exactly. So let me take example of this agriculture sectors. Sixty yeah. percent mm -hmm. of the global economic losses due to the disaster is basically in the agriculture sectors. And in fact, agriculture sectors also contribute a lot to the global emissions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Take example of Cameron Highlands. Every year they are making profit about one almost one billion ringgit Malaysia. They could um, export uh, close to thirty percent of the agriculture product to Singapore. Yeah. And um, we did a study over 120 years of land use changes over these Cameron Highlands. And we have seen the trend of the big companies who are making profit without really care about the environment. Without right. giving back. And when we plot the changes of the land use and the numbers of landslides, slope failures are increasing positively mm. is well correlated in the sense that the numbers of people die because of the landslides mm -hmm. and also the amount of the profits they are making every year without a, a, a so-called a private sector's contributions they are dependent too much to the governments to invest on the preventive instead of they are taking um, initiative by their own to invest into mm -hmm. uh, risk reduction. So this is just a simple uh, example on how basically you can see one particular sector mm -hmm. uh, making profits without really willing to invest on the risk reductions, for example. Mm -hmm. on, on the other hand, we have seen also farmers, we mm -hmm. have seen also people, tourists are coming to the disaster prone area without warning. And this is something um, a scary uh, in yeah. the sense that we are going for holiday to Cameron Highlands mm -hmm. without really expecting uh, the disaster to come. Mm. Right. Yeah. So, so Faisal, just to kind of touch on some of those things, then you know, we are blaming companies. You know, and we spoke <laughs> in some ways and, and industries, I should say. Yeah. Um, but as as individuals, you know, personally, what what what's your kind of observations as an individual? But I think. When we say we blame companies, but who's buying the goods from the we company? Are. We are. <laughs> so, I mean, if I mean, as this, uh, if if we're not buying products from those companies that are causing destruction, mm. they're not going to be carrying on. They're out right. of business. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, it's very easy to abdicate responsibility. Oh, I, 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 it's someone else's responsibility. This is always what we like to do. Mm. Oh, the problem with disaster, the pollution. Oh, this is government job. Huh? You clean up. Huh? Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then uh, I've got I nothing to do. I think companies are doing that as well in some ways, aren't they? So mm. they implement these recycling uh, no bags. things. No bag stuff. But what they, say, they, they do is then they turn it around. To, it's your responsibility to recycle your goods. We're giving you the, uh, the option to do it, mm. but it's your responsibility, yeah. right? But in terms of what people can do. No one is powerless. Everyone, we all have power, but we have mm. to act together. Mm. If you act against one another, yeah. you're not going to uh, have an impact. But every river starts with a drop of water. Mm -hmm. so, and that eventually becomes an ocean. So everyone can take action themselves and work with others and it become a movement and that become change. Right. Yeah. And I think, don't think because you're one person, you cannot make a difference. Mm. You can make a difference. That can be by your action, what you're buying, what you're using, your lifestyle, mm -hmm. by what you're saying, by what you're doing, mm. by the voice that you bring, whether you're in the media or you're uh, in lobbying to politician or you're uh, giving viewpoint or your every all of these companies these bad companies 
<laughs> they're made up of individuals. Right. Yeah. Mm. So everyone, whatever company that you're in, you have a role in that company. Don't say, oh, I need to care about environment while I'm at home, while I'm at the office, I just carry on and do the destructive thing. No, bring the voice up in your company. Mm. And the smart companies are the ones that are recognized that if they want to be sustainable for 50 years, for 100 years, they need to invest in environment and sustainability now. They need yeah. to be ahead of the curve. Even a small and medium enterprise can modify the way that they're doing things. And by modifying the way they're doing things, I mean, sometimes people have this perception to be green, to be environmental friendly is more expensive. Mm. No, in many cases, you're saving money. Mm. Mm. If you cut your electricity bill, are you spending more money or less money? No, you're spending less money. Yeah. I mean, you're right. I mean, small and medium enterprises, they account for like 30% of the economy. So mm. together, it, it's a big, it's a it's big thing. It is. Yeah. Mm. So don't think only if you're in a big company, you can make a difference. Everyone can make a difference, but yeah. it needs to be coordinated, it needs to be driven. And that's where, I mean, from our point of view, Global Environment Center, mm. our sort of uh, motto is building partnership for the environment. Mm. We, have, we cannot be saying the NGO criticizing the, the private sector, the private sector blaming someone else, the government uh, blaming someone else. Mm. If, if we're in the blame game, we're never going to solve things. Mm. So we have to look at this. We have to be in it together. Yeah. We are in it together. We've only got one, one, one Earth, Earth, one planet, yeah. one Malaysia. <laughs> uh, sorry, we can't have another one when we mess this one up. Um, so we have to work together and, and try to find that solution together. And mm. everyone's involved. So the companies, the government, the local government, the community, everyone ha have to be engaged. And then you've got to be that brave. You've got very strong and, yeah. and do it. I mean, maybe in other countries it's difficult to do. Mm. To uh, it's going back to what Dr. Cameron was saying about the enforcement, right? Yeah, mm. yeah, that's 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 the weak point, is it? Mm. Okay, so Dr. Cameron, you've worked in natural disaster research in Japan. Mm. Um, what was that like? <laughs> well. Um, uh, under this uh, Madeka Award grant, mm -hmm. I, I spent about three months in Japan. Uh, I choose particularly Japan because of the countries. Yeah. Not because they have a lot of disasters. Uh, definitely, because <laughs> definitely of the disasters of and the way they accept a certain risk. Right. You, know? mm. um, you have hundreds of earthquakes every month and, and numbers of floodings and so on. But there are many secret recipes from this Japanese mm. culture, the way they look risk and uh, perceive certain risk. You know, in the disaster world, we often use these two things. First, if you can reduce a number of losses, human losses, and also economic losses. Mm. So these are only two things that they embedded into the young generations in whatever drills, preparedness programs, they take it seriously, mm -hmm. mm. you know, where's the evacuation routes, where's the evacuation centers, where to get the information. These are simple things from the disaster world. Then they bend it into their daily culture, how to get uh, um, a good information, mm. you know, the young kids. Do mm. you think this is something that Malaysia can learn from, can emulate? Definitely. Yeah. I've seen that and we have some scientific evidence. We are talking about 17,000 um, head of the villages that we are going to train for the next couple of years. Mm. Interesting. And wow. you have to strengthen at the local level. Yeah. Mm. In the last 20 years of our disaster records are localized. Most of the disasters are localized. If you strengthen the local capacity, mm -hmm. put more investment to the localizations, basically you can reduce the human losses and economic losses. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Faisal, let's jump over to you then. So you, you've run a lot of community programs on the GEC. Yeah. Uh, what's been the most rewarding um, thing about working with people on the ground? And, and how does the funding or the help from Trust like the Medeca Award help with that? Yeah. So I think uh, communities are fundamental to our work. Uh, we really try to, wherever we're working, work with the local community to try to build them up and empower and draw on their knowledge and expertise. We should never think that we from outside know more than the local community. They're the ones living in the area. Yeah. They have the history uh, in, in terms of our indigenous uh, communities like Orang Asli and so on. They know way much more than mm -hmm. any expert. 
and they have a very good uh, knowledge and, and, and strategies, but they're often marginalized and disadvantaged and, and, and excluded from decision making, and they're always blamed for problems. So when we get forest fire, when the peatland burning, oh, this must be the Orange Isley or whatever causing this, this problem. But we have really, by working with community, really proven otherwise that the community, when recognized, when empowered, can really make fundamental difference. So for example, in, in Slango, we're facing in the past a very big problem with uh, fires in the peatland area. Yeah. And fires were burning often in North Slango for months at a time. Uh, Bomber is trying to fight the fire, the smoke clouds are covering and causing uh, problems. And we've been able, by working with the local community in those fire prone areas, mm together with the government and also private sector, we've been able to reduce in the last five, six years by 98% reduction in fires in the peatland. So it can be done and that's, that's the only way yeah. it can be done. Uh, and we have uh, community members who are in the dry season every day, they're taking their motorbike and patrolling along the boundary of the forest, they're identifying, they're checking the water levels, uh, they're checking for any intrusion or people coming in from outside. It would be impossible for the government agencies to do that. They don't have enough manpower or people. So these uh, type of community activities are essential, but often very difficult to get the sustaining resources to support that. Often, uh, sometimes uh, funders are just give uh, very targeted money for short, short-term project or they want to fund some event or something. But community is a long-term process. Mm. And so uh, the support that we've got through the Medeka Award Trust has really made a difference because it's unrestricted. It's up to us how we use that. Mm. And so we're able to support long-term sustaining programs even after other traditional projects have stopped. No, with community you never can stop. You must continue. And you must, because you must, I mean, not that we're, we're holding their hand all the way, but there is some support, advice, support, recognition, and making those links. That can be done with this flexible uh, funds that we uh, mm. receive from Medeka Award or, or other funding sources. So you, you both had different experiences with the Medeka Award. Dr. Camerol, you, you went to Japan and you yep. learned, how, you brought that knowledge back. You're helping influence the community. Interesting stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How has it helped you? Well, it helps a lot. Um, well, since I came back from Japan, mm -hmm. um, we have been trained um, up to 1,500 disaster managers. Mm -hmm. Those who are making decisions for us during the disaster, during the calamity, we have to increase their capacities. And these 1,500 people, the um, policy makers, disaster managers, have to be trained. And we have built this networking, you know, that's number one. And number two, um, we have been also training many local community leaders, close to 20,000 in the last five years. Mm. So we have, seen, we have seen these changes locally. So I hope that we can uh, train uh, many more local champions in the future. Speaking of local champions, like from generation to generation, and we've, we've seen climate activists, you know, they, they've persevered to make sure that those people are in power are being held accountable. And we, we've seen global figures rising as well. Younger people, Greta Thunberg is, is just one example, mm. you know. And they're working on these big environmental issues and people are talking about them, they're in the news a lot. Are people taking them more seriously now? And how different is it compared to before? I mean, you would have people like David Attenborough, maybe, who was the quiet elder statesman of environmental issues and now you have somebody who's on the opposite end of the spectrum yeah. I mean I see that obviously it can be quite polarizing mm. how do you feel about that I think I think the the new environment leaders emerging are recognizing the urgency of the action right I mean 50 years ago maybe it was a different situation yeah, yeah. and I think that urgency is what is stimulating the newly emerging leaders saying we're not just going to talk about the beauties of the environment. We need action now. And that's what everyone needs to listen to that new rallying cry. Mm. We have to start taking action now, not just sitting in front of our TV screen and say, oh, that's nice, National Geographic. Oh, I like right. the lions there. The oh, whatever. Nice. Uh, that's interesting. <laughs> the word interesting is not 
Enough. going to solve problem. Yeah. We need to realize there's a problem. We're part of that problem. Mm. It's not someone else. We're not blaming. We are part of that problem. We're the human race. The, the subtlety is change. no longer enough. So we have to be more direct. And yeah. I think that's why Greta Thunberg or other emerging leaders all around the world mm. are saying we've got to do more. And the politicians, the decision makers have got to listen to that wave of, of opinion because we need it. We cannot just have the leave it to the activist. Yeah. We need the private sector. We need the local government. We need the politician also to be in unison. But let's work towards a solution, a win-win solution, not just fight one another all the time and then uh, nothing is done. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you want to close off, Richard? Just, if you've got one piece of advice, oh. you know, very, very quickly, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Just, just one mm. that, that you would tell people, you know, almost like a rallying call. But keep, keep it short. What, what would you say to them? I'll start with Cameron. Well, we have to invest into the future. The future generations need help. Mm. Um, in the disaster world, we always refer to this philosophy. Uh, learning from the past is the key to the future. Mm -hmm. So we learn a lot from the past. But I think we need a, a strong uh, actions locally with uh, our local resources, local capacities. I think we need a, f a fundamental shift in the way that we're managing society and, and, and the planet. And, and everyone can play a part in that. Don't say it's someone else's responsibility. It's your responsibility. If you do not take action yourself, you are liable for the problem. Through inaction, you are contributing to the problem. Mm. So everyone can do something in your life. You can change your impact, you can look at your carbon footprint, you can modify that, you can be out there, you can create a group, you can uh, lobby, you can spread the word. Don't just sit there listening to this or watching this and say, oh, that's another chat show or whatever, and <laughs> now let's hear some music or whatever. Take some action. If you don't, you are going to regret it in the future. Right. So next time either of us feel like going to buy some newer clothes, I'll call you, you call me, and we talk okay, to each other about it. And yeah. we'll have to count our carbon footprint yeah, emissions. Yeah. All right, that concludes this episode of Big Brain Energy. Do stay tuned, though. We've got more episodes coming up for you soon. From all of us here, we're going to say goodbye. Bye-bye now. Bye. 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 Bye.